Please keep in mind that this podcast deals with advocacy issues, and due to the nature of shifting legislation, this content may be outdated. Healthcare policy will always be a critical matter of any political candidate's platform. Once elected, representatives can make their mark on the healthcare landscape going forward. Late in this election, one thing that emerged is healthcare was a very, very important issue. It grew in importance to voters uh, throughout the cycle and kind of peaked right about election day. And exit polls really confirmed this also. Uh, Gallup's midterm election tracking polls showed that healthcare was the number one issue on voters' minds. That was even ahead of the economy, immigration, gun policy, taxes, and every other issue they polled. That's Todd Askew, AMA Director of Congressional Affairs. On this episode of Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association, Mr. Askew recaps results from the midterm elections. We also hear from Richard Dean, AMA Senior Vice President for Advocacy, with a review of what those results mean for future healthcare policy. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the American Medical Association. This episode of Moving Medicine is one of two parts on the AMA's advocacy and policy work in 2018 and our look ahead to 2019. This speech was presented at the 2018 AMA interim meeting. Here's Todd Askew. What I'm going to do is go through a little bit about recapping what happened in this election, and Rich is going to uh, come up after me and, and talk about what this means for healthcare policy going forward. Uh, in, into the next Congress. Especially late in this election, one thing that emerged is health care was a very, very important issue. It grew in importance to voters uh, throughout the cycle and kind of peaked right about election day. And exit polls really confirmed this also. Uh, Gallup's midterm election tracking polls showed that health care was the number one issue on voters' minds. That was even ahead of the economy, immigration, gun policy, taxes, and every other issue they polled. So voters went to the ballot box thinking about thinking about health care. Um, Democrats were even a little more fired up about health care with 87% of Democrats saying that it was extremely or very important uh, to them about how they voted. But even 72% of Republican voters uh, felt the, uh, ranked it the same way. And so uh, among those uh, that considered them health care themselves, health care voters who were there voting on health care issues, uh, these were the four general areas uh, that they ranked as the most important cost, uh, access, coverage, and that includes uh, Affordable Care Act, preservation of, and, and Medicare issues. And uh, you saw these issues play out both at the federal level uh, and at the state level. And it's kind of ironic uh, in that in 2010, Democrats did not want to talk about health care. They had just passed the ACA. There was a lot of discontent. They ran away from the issue, and they got slaughtered. This year, Democrats embraced it as people have come to understand the value of the ACA and what Medicaid expansion has done in so many states for coverage. And they embraced it this year and, and, saw, uh, and saw a big legislative uh, benefit from that. And Tom Davis, who's a former congressman from Virginia uh, and former NRCC chair, has observed that uh, the one thing they know about health care is that if you're disruptive, uh, you lose. People prefer stability. Two of the big issues um, that came up during the election were both pre-existing conditions and Medicare for all. Um, so uh, the Democrats rather successfully tagged a lot of Republican voters as opposing 
or trying to get rid of pre-existing condition uh, exclusions. There is some truth, there is some exaggeration, hyperbole in those charges, uh, but it was a successful effort. And unfortunately, a lot of Republican candidates, you know, they didn't have a lot to point to to counter that. I mean, they signed some non-binding resolutions that were all for pre-existing condition protections, but at the end of the day, they had ongoing litigation, they had votes to repeal the ACA, uh, they had administration actions which undermined pre-existing condition coverage exclusions uh, or protections, and so it was difficult for them to successfully make the argument. And so Democrats really went after him on it. And at the same time, Democrats on caucus was tearing itself apart internally about Medicare for all, single payer, you know, whatever you want to call it. So Medicare for all was advanced uh, primarily uh, Senator Sanders and his supporters pushed a lot of Democrats into this. A lot of Democrats signed up. They said, yeah, I'm for that because they didn't want to get primaried from the left. And then as we came back to the general election, they realized, well, there's a lot of people out there that aren't comfortable with the concept because the Sanders proposal is not Medicare for all. The Sanders proposal ends Medicare, essentially. It makes it a single-payer system. It, it completely changes everything. Uh, so people started talking about other things. Well, I'm for... Uh, public option, right? I'm for Medicare buy-in. And they never really got beyond what that, down to what that really meant. There was some ambiguity in that. So voters saw in those statements what they wanted to see. Pro-single-payer voters said, hey, they mean single-payer. You know, pro-anti-single-payer you know, people said, well, they just want to offer us another option to, you know, to purchase health insurance. And so it became a very difficult thing to tag a lot of Democrats with. At the end of the day, though, those that really staked their campaign on Medicare for all, single payer, lost. 90% of people who featured, 90% of candidates who featured single payer or Medicare for all as kind of their prime thing did not get elected. So a lot of people have speculated that that is a dead issue. Probably not. We're still going to have to watch this very closely and take efforts to talk to people about what it means. but. Um, it is definitely something that uh, did not carry the day uh, during, the, uh, uh, during the last campaign, during this last election. Another big issue, though, was Medicaid expansion. Thirteen states have not expanded uh, Medicaid. Um, it became a ballot issue uh, in four states and a featured issue in a lot of governor's races. Uh, mostly those proposed proponents of Medicaid expansion were successful. You had states who had 17 states or the number of states that had not expanded, say in 13, I believe, uh, looking at, well, the feds pay 93% of the cost. And that's our tax dollars going to Washington and not coming back to us. Um, they also uh, know that the lowest it will go at least in 2020, I believe, is 90% federal match uh, in perpetuity. And so a voter started to think, uh, that that is actually a pretty good deal. It was successful in Utah, Idaho, and uh, Nebraska. It did fail to extend the expansion in Montana, uh, but I think that probably had more to do with the financing mechanism that had been proposed as opposed to uh, the, the, the merits of Medicaid expansion. It was a featured issue in several governor's races, including Georgia and Florida, which are obviously both uh, officially unsettled at this time but Kansas and Wisconsin as well, where the proponents of Medicaid expansion uh, prevailed. A big impact next year will be committee leadership structure. 
Um, there are not a lot of new faces here. They're just kind of going to have new responsibilities. Um, Senator Grassley, though, is an oversight guy, and so if he does return to finance, I think you will see a lot of oversight of federal health care spending programs uh, and, a lot, of, uh, and a, lot, a lot of other issues as, as well. I would highlight one other, Richie Neal, uh, Massachusetts, will be uh, presumptive chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Richie Neal is a moderate. He is a pro-business Democrat. He works very well across the aisle. And I think Kevin Brady, as chairman, uh, during the last, uh, this current Congress, really respected the role of the minority in that process to the extent that he could. And I think uh, Mr. Neal is going to want to repay that and try and work in a bipartisan way to see what can be accomplished. Um, last thing I want to do is talk just a, very quickly about kind of some general buckets that they, they may be looking at in terms of governance. Um, uh, the first of these is very aggressive oversight. Uh, there's been a pent-up demand from Democrats to look at a lot of uh, issues, a lot of uh, federal, um, uh, both federal issues and issues in corporate governance. Uh, that the Republicans have not paid much attention to. And so you already see a lot of uh, pretend or presumptive chairman coming out uh, in the last few days and outlining an aggressive oversight agenda. Uh, and so that will definitely be something they pursue. But obviously the danger there is you overplay your hand and you look like you're just being completely political and not interested in getting anything done. They will work to try and reverse some of the deregulatory efforts of the Trump administration and some of the efforts they've made on the ACA, but they're but without control of both chambers. Uh, they have very limited ability to do very much there. Again, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, addressing the pent-up demand within their caucus to, to stop some of these more than actually being able to uh, do much. There are a handful of things um, that could potentially um, pass. Uh, that are important to get done, infrastructure, prescription drug pricing in a fairly limited way, and trade deals obviously are all priorities uh, that have some support on both sides of the aisle. So it'll be interesting to see that, how that plays out. And then there are the base issues where uh, there's probably not going to be a lot of bipartisan comedy on some of these issues, uh, but they will be focused. H.R. 1 uh, is going to be an ethics and campaign finance reform package. Uh, that, that Speaker, presumptive Speaker Pelosi, we'll just go with that for now, uh, puts up um, guns, voting rights, Medicare for all. Uh, they're going to have to have hearings and play to that part of their base uh, and a number of other issues that will be very popular. So that's kind of the big picture category, but there are obviously a lot of health care policy things that are going to need to be addressed during the next couple of years. So turn it over to Rich to talk about those. Thank you, Todd. Good morning, everybody. Um, first, I want to start with the comment that we have a lot of policy, and where we have gaps in policy, George has conference calls with the Council of Legislation, sometimes a couple times a month, as need be, if we need to go on the phone. More than that, they do uh, to help us uh, navigate uh, what gaps we have in policy, and then they make recommendations onto the board. Uh, in terms of the outlook for health policy, uh, we'll start with ACA fixes. Uh, at one point this past year, they were pretty close to agreement in the Senate. Uh, you had Alexander and Murray, election year politics got into it, the way here. Um, but I do think there is an opportunity to revisit that. A lot of the work has been done on CSR funding, maybe some reinsurance. Subsidy cliff, uh, that's additional tax credits for those people above 400% of the poverty line. 
that may be a little bit of a, 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 a longer reach. Prescription drug prices, clearly this is an area where a Democratic leader, uh, the Speaker in the House, and the White House may reach agreement on this because this is such a, a, an issue that uh, all Americans are concerned about. I think we're probably looking at a more modest level in terms of what might get through uh, both chambers. Uh, things like um, maybe stopping the um, games that are played with uh, the patent laws, uh, some more transparency, uh, maybe the Medicaid rebates increase if prices uh, increase above a certain threshold. Uh, clearly, we've done a lot of work on regulatory relief, and we'll continue there. And some of that's been on the administrative side. In terms of the substance abuse issue, the opioid epidemic, clearly the pressure will be on coverage increases. Higher ed, this is where the student loan funding is authorized. Uh, they should have done this this past year, and we'll have to address that in the coming year. And you've heard about immigration, a lot of policy. Whether they can get agreement on a big immigration deal, I think, is doubtful. Uh, but clearly, we'll have to deal with DACA between the courts and the legislation. Clearly, there are a number of other regulatory things that have coming out of the Office of Civil Rights, dealing with LGBTQ issues and uh, immigration issues that we've engaged in administrative agencies where there was a backlog in visas being processed. We've engaged on those types of things as well. In terms of the challenges, I'm just going to focus on one thing here, and that's the budget. Uh, Congress years ago established budget caps. They set those aside this past year so they could spend more money for defense and domestic programs. Um, this year, just on a one-year basis, they have to find $90 billion to put the budget together. $90 billion, there's not a lot of low-hanging fruit here. Uh, now, they really want to cut a two-year deal, which means it's $225 billion that they have to find in order to uh, get under these budget caps. And that's going to create some stress for the entitlement programs uh, and some of the domestic programs that we care very much about. Our priorities haven't changed. Uh, clearly, we are going to continue to advocate very firmly for expanding coverage, maintaining the safety net programs, making sure that there is better health equity uh, in this nation. Uh, both within the federal state and also engagement with the insurers and outside of government. Some of these egregious insurance practices with the primary focus on prior authorization right now is a big part of our work. Uh, the opioid epidemic, I just want to stop here, and there's uh, a project that Kai Sternstein is leading that we're going to be rolling out very soon in which we've gone into just a few states, Pennsylvania being the first, but also we've gone into Colorado, Mississippi, and North Carolina, to do very detailed analysis of what the gaps are, and we engage the insurance regulators, the Medicaid directors, the behavioral health people, maybe the drug control office in that state. And the purpose here is to provide a playbook that we can share with other states um, so that they can uh, do, make greater progress on the opioid epidemic. Uh, gun violence issues been touched upon earlier. I think really what we're uh, likely to uh, see here is a push on our part and others for CDC funding. Uh, maybe we can do something on expanded background checks, uh, but you have to look at the reality of the numbers in the Senate, and I still think we're a long ways to go from being able to enact all of the AMA policy, but we will continue to push. On the delivery and payment side, I want to focus here. You've heard about uh, the, the rule from Willie about the um, MIPS and the and APM changes. Uh, we are undertaking a project to do a long-term look. It's probably going to take two, three, five years 
at what are the fundamentals of physician payment in the Medicare program. This is so important because Medicare drives all the other payer policies. And we know that the updates are inadequate. We know that the practice expense methodology probably doesn't reflect the cost that you all bear in terms of the electronic record burden that you have to support, the quality reporting that you have to implement, uh, and there are other aspects of your practice. So we want to go on an evidence basis. We've got some outside people who are very interested in working with us to develop evidence to take to Congress and the administration to try to improve uh, the payment fundamentals for physician and Medicare program. Now, we're in a very tough budget environment. Uh, we're going to have to find offsets for this. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight, uh, but we're looking over the horizon here to try to make your practice environment more sustainable uh, and put you in a position so that you have a sustainable practice that can look at some new payment and delivery models uh, if you've got a proper margin to do that. I do want to uh, make the point that in addition to the, you know, deference on the, on the coding change, coding collapse, there was a very important decision also with respect to not going forward with multiple procedure payment reduction. Why this is important is that Jack Resnick and our health policy team had a big victory earlier this year with Anthem in which we stopped them from applying this policy. The savings annually were $100 million just for the Anthem book of business. Now, because we got Anthem to not go forward, United Healthcare also didn't proceed with similar proposals. So very important that we didn't have Medicare sort of undercut, CMS undercut, the gains that we had in the, in the commercial side of things. Um, but we've got a lot of work cut out for us. The hard work is ahead. We're going to have to get consensus within the profession on any revisions to the E&M codes, and that's going to be some hard work, and we want people to come to the table as they have, uh, and, we're, and everybody's going to have to, I think, uh, do some bit of compromise, and compromise is not a dirty word. There were a few things that we didn't like in the rule. I don't want to dwell on the negative here. I'm just going to focus on one thing. We maintain a work group that Margaret and her team leads, two work groups, one on MIPS and one on the APMs. Um, obviously, we want more APMs to come through the pipeline that was created by Congress through the PTAC, uh, and we're keeping that dialogue going with CMS, and hopefully we're going to get a breakthrough in the near future. Um, but what Margaret's team has done is try to come up with a scoring methodology that simplifies things for physicians so you got better line of sight for the MIPS side of the business uh, and also to make things more holistic so that when you are doing an activity that involves the you know, quality reporting, that involves the use of electronic record, those things are connected in a way that you get credit across categories. So uh, we know that the system... This MIPS program is not perfect by any means, but we are working very hard to meet on a monthly basis with a team of people. Obviously, there's dialogue probably every day of the week with CMS on some aspects of this, but we're really pushing hard uh, to simplify uh, the, the whole MIPS process for physicians. Here are just a few proof points in terms of the value of AMA membership from an advocacy perspective. Uh, you heard the code collapse issue. This was going to be a huge hit to physicians across uh, many specialties. Uh, we had the decision that was announced that it was referenced earlier in terms of the decision Pennsylvania for coverage of medically assisted treatment. That's a landmark decision we want to take to all 50 states. Um, and uh, we've also heard earlier today about the digital medicine uh, increases, uh, the policies that we've advanced to expand the 
uh, ability to use telemedicine, but also to cover things in a physician's office like you know virtual uh, visits, interactions with patients, and consultations between physicians over the internet. Um, the Anthem proposal that I mentioned earlier, uh, Todd and his team were successful back in February to get legislation through Congress to uh, allow us to uh, have greater flexibility in the implementation of the MIPS program because this is a five-year implementation period. We were able to sort of soften the glide path for physicians with these amendments. We're also to be able to confirm that things like uh, prescription drug, Part B administered drugs were not subject to the MIPS penalties. Uh, we've been able to reduce the quality reporting burdens. Uh, that's sort of a two-edged sword because uh, when we reduce the number of measures that CMS has in, the, in, the, in a drawer, sometimes we've got to reduce the, the requirements and we haven't been fully successful in that piece, but we're going to continue to press. Um, people have probably forgotten that back in February, we're also able to repeal the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which was something that's part of ACA that we've been working for a number of years to remove. And you've heard earlier in terms of the huge number of victims that Kai and her team have been able to uh, push forward uh, with respect to the state, at the state level. Um, just to keep you informed throughout the year, we put out every two weeks the advocacy update. This covers the breaking news on federal, state, and the judicial courts as well. Uh, encourage you, if you're not signed up for this, it's free. Uh, and you get great information to use uh, with your colleagues and other activities. If you are not already a member of our grassroots network, please join. We have two levels to the physician grassroots network. We have the, the just the regular level at the grassroots piece for physicians. Then we have a VIP group. These are people who have a definite relationship with a key member of Congress or any member of Congress. Um, and so we provide some additional support for them to engage, help us uh, when uh, we're at uh, 12.30 at night or over a weekend, we need to contact member of Congress. These are the groups that have that kind of access. And we provide additional training and provide the source of information so you can be good advocates. Uh, obviously, I'm not gonna talk about the patient side, but we have 1.2 million patients in a, in a network as well that we use to help us uh, at the federal level. And finally, AMPAC, um, this is an investment in your profession. I know there are many AMPAC members here, uh, but this allows medicine to support candidates. We run a campaign school that many physicians have participated in, and those graduates have gone on to state houses, statewide offices, the United States Senate, and then the U.S. Congress. Now we're up to 16 members, 16 physicians uh, in the House, and, and a number of those people have um, gone through uh, this process. But this also allows your advocates, your colleagues, to interact with members of Congress, to build relationships with them. Um, and uh, I can't stress enough how important this is uh, for us to be involved, not just at the policy level, but also at the political level. Um, and uh, it's been a very effective program for medicine, and it's uh, an investment in your profession. That was Todd Askew and Richard Dean. Be sure to tune in to the other episode in this two-part series about the AMA's advocacy and policy work. 
To get exclusive AMA advocacy news and information impacting physicians, patients, and the healthcare environment, subscribe to AMA's Advocacy Update newsletter at ama-assn.org slash advocacy-update. You can also subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. 